Podcastle episode 208 for May 15th, 2012. Fable from a Cage by Tim Pratt. This one is definitely rated R, friends. Unquestionably a fantasy, but I wouldn't be surprised if we get people saying, Why wasn't this on Pseudopod? Welcome to Podcastle. I'm M.K. Hobson, and today's story is Fable from a Cage by Tim Pratt. You know, when you sit down to write an intro, and your subject is cannibalism, it's pretty hard not to come up with something interesting. But I had no idea that I would come up with something quite as incredible as the 1966 article from the Journal of Nervous and Mental Disease that the Google gods threw in my lap. The article is entitled, Hamburger Hoarding, a case of symbolic cannibalism resembling Whitico psychosis. It's the tale of a 37-year-old bachelorette secretary who had a minor auto accident in 1952. She was the driver, and she emerged unscathed, but her younger sister suffered bloody but minor lacerations to her face. The event was extremely upsetting for our bachelorette secretary, and she entered psychiatric treatment, which she continued for the next eight years. Clearly, it wasn't a very productive eight years, because in 1960, she began buying and hoarding large quantities of raw hamburger, up to 60 pounds a day. The precipitating event of this new behavior, according to the case study, was an airplane trip that her younger sister, the one who'd been injured in the accident, was about to take. To assuage her anxiety over her sister's well-being, the patient bought a cooked hot dog, removed it from the bun, and carried it around in her handbag. When the hot dog spoiled, she switched to raw hamburger, and the rest was history. I'll just leave you to imagine what the psychiatric establishment of the 1960s made of our girl's first choice of hot dog. But the hot dog does not concern us any further. Once she switched to hamburger, there was no going back. The case study went on to conclude that the patient's hamburger hoarding behavior was due to unresolved issues with her dead father. The authors describe how she would carry around the huge quantities of hamburger she had collected in a large black auto, which was an exact replica of one her father had owned. She could not bear to part with the hamburger, even when it became rotten. And so, concluded the authors, it became clear that she had converted her father's automobile into a hearse, in which she carried his rotting body, and to which she gave renewed life every day in the form of fresh hamburger. Although she never reported wishes to eat this hamburger, the somewhat displaced fantasy of devouring hamburger in a supermarket case leaves little doubt as to the cannibalistic level of this behavior. And if you think the paper can't get any better from there, you're wrong. It goes on to connect the hamburger hoarding behavior with something called psychosis, a form of mental illness described among the Cree Eskimos and Ojibwa Indians by Catholic missionaries. And you know, I'm just going to let that last sentence pass without comment. This particular psychosis is described as occurring mainly in men in the wintertime and is preceded by withdrawal into a brooding state that eventually morphs into the obsessive wish to kill other people and devour them. In some, it is noted, a delusion develops of having been transformed into a Whitico, a cannibalistic monster with viscera of ice. Now, it's possible you don't believe that this is a real article. Well, I assure you it is, and I will give Dave the link to post to prove it. Honestly, I don't think I could make something like this up, but the author of today's story, Tim Pratt, probably could. Of Tim's most recent novel, Briar Patch, SF site reviewer Richard A. Lupoff says, There are endless wonders and strange characters in the Briar Patch, including shape-shifting bears who can become humans, or vice versa. There are strange sights, glowing lights, and elements of the quest novel. There are some pretty frank and explicit sex scenes, especially involving a fascinating female named Echo. There's philosophy and there's violence, there's menace and evil and retribution. To find out more, go visit Tim's website, www.timpratt.org. The story is read by Podcastle's own Dave Thompson, who continues to be an all-around awesome guy, at least when he's not hoarding raw hamburger. Enjoy the story. Fable from a Cage by Tim Pratt Let me tell you a little fable. A story I crafted while sitting inside this dangling cage where the rooks shit on me and steal my bread all day and the smoke from your town fire stings my eyes all night. 
Did you know the owls feed me? They bring me rats, mice, squirrels, and I eat them. That's why I haven't died yet. I'll never die. Not here. Wait all you like. My fable? Yes. Oh, yes, it will most assuredly have a moral. Hunker down and listen for it, boys. Once there was a thief who wandered in this country, passing from valley to valley in the night, loosening the ropes on cows and leading them away to sell in another town. He lifted bags of fruits from wagons. He picked up things that others put down. He was not a brigand, understand. He did not knock down defenseless women. He did not swagger with a looted sword on his hip. He did not terrorize the roads. Indeed, he traveled between the roads more than on them. His crimes were all crimes of opportunity, but for an observant man, there are many opportunities for crime. Not a brigand, no, but also nothing so grand as a burglar or a master thief. For there are men who can be like artists of the criminal trades, and this thief had known such men, but he did not compare to them. His was a lonely life, always running from one village to another, and he wondered sometimes how he had come to live in such a way, he who had been born in the city. Oh yes, the city, you greedy little shits. Look how your eyes widen and the drool falls from your lips. This thief had been born in the city, son of a banker, and he might have had a nice life if he hadn't dallied with the daughter of a ship's captain, but that is a different story, and not a fable at all. Not a moral tale, in any sense, my young ones. So this thief, who had a fine black beard, his one vanity, a beard as fine as mine was before this month without trimming, had fallen on hard times. He was down to his last coins and his fine clothes, lifted from a tailor shop and almost exactly the right size, were stained from trying to steal a pig the night before, an act below even his usual flexible standards. He was musing on what to do next, for he had decided that three years traveling this way was more than enough for him, but he felt too old to apprentice himself to a trade. Indeed, he knew himself well enough to know that the moment his master Smith or Cooper turned his back, he would feel compelled to snatch up their tools and run away, as much from boredom as from habit. Walking through the forest that day in a dour mood, he caught his foot on a root and went sprawling. The fall knocked the wind from him, and he lay gasping on the forest floor. Because he could not do otherwise, he stared at the dirt before him and noticed a large golden bracelet in the dirt. The thief sat up smiling, for here was the perfect crime of opportunity. A bit of jewelry dropped by some passerby, which would not be missed, and which would enrich him. He reached down, wrapped his fingers around the gold, and tried to pick it up. It moved a little, but something held it fast. The thief brushed the dirt around the ring and found half of it sealed in black metal. He brushed away more dirt, curious now, and cleared a square of metal three feet to a side. The ring was no bracelet, but a handle for this trap door. The handle wasn't really gold either, just brass. The thief hesitated. He'd heard the stories, of course, of brigands with secret treasure troves in the forest where they kept their choicest things. Had he found such a place? And if so, did someone keep guard and watch over it? Ah, but the opportunity. How could he walk away from such a rich possibility? The thief wrapped his fingers tight around the ring and pulled. The door moved with surprising ease, without so much as a squeal of hinges. A great cloud of dust rose up with the trapdoor, and the thief turned his face away and coughed, his eyes watering. He let the trapdoor fall back, revealing a black square of darkness. The thief got down on his knees and peered in, wishing for a lantern. There was no ladder and no steps. Did the brigand king lower himself down with ropes suspended from the treetops? Something shoved him from behind. The thief screamed as he fell. The brigand king had come upon him, and now he would die sealed in with the dusty old treasures. He hit the ground quickly, far sooner than he'd expected, and it wasn't ground at all but a pile of soft fabric, furs, and silks. A bit dusty, but more than enough to break his fall. Should he pretend to be dead? He turned over slowly, reasoning that since he'd been unable to see the bottom of the shaft from above, 
Whoever had pushed him would be similarly blind. He peered up at the square of sky and branches and saw no one. He sat up gingerly, but found no injuries or pains. He sat waiting for a few moments, expecting a face to appear above or a voice to call out or, worst of all, for the trapdoor to swing shut, sealing him in irrevocably, leaving his spirit to guard this pile of fabrics and whatever other treasures lay in the darkness. Something hissed like a spitting cat, and the thief shrieked. Then he saw light. The hiss had been the sound of an oil-soaked wick igniting. Someone was down here with him. He could see the lantern, a glass-sided, intricate thing, fit for a rich man's house. It sat on a marble pedestal like the hacked-off base of a column. He saw no one near the lantern. I saw the trap door, he began. I found it by accident, and, well, just natural curiosity, you understand. I wanted to see what was underneath. I mean no harm. You're a thief, a low, neutral voice said. It came from a place in the cavern far from the lamplight. The thief turned his head that way, startled. Oh, no, I'm just a journeyman carpenter and... A thief and a liar. There was satisfaction in the voice now. The only ones who had ever sounded satisfied about finding a thief were people who planned to kill or beat that thief very badly. I have need of a thief, the voice said, and then a figure stepped into the lantern light. It was a woman. Stop your tittering, snot noses. This isn't a body tale. You'll have to lurk under the tavern windows to hear one of those. No, she wasn't a beautiful woman. She looked like all your mothers, I'd wager. Gray in her hair, lines in her face, a good sturdy build. Not a beauty. Not like that ship captain's daughter who got our thief in so much trouble. Not at all. The woman was dressed incongruously in a fine fur coat. You must be hungry, she said. Would you like something to eat? I have some meat roasting. I didn't mean to fall into your home, the thief said. If you'll show me a way out, I'll be going. It's not a home, thief. It's a burial chamber, like the men in the desert are reputed to build. That's the joke, I think. A cavern filled with all the things I need to live well after death. Fine dishes, fine silks, lanterns, pots, tools. All I've lacked is servants. She smiled. At least until you arrived. And you want to leave? If I'd wanted you to get out, thief... Why would I have shoved you in? Her eyes were no particular color, it seemed to him. Perhaps the gray of dirty wash water. But she stared at him, not smiling at all now. Ah, he said. You pushed me, you say? You opened the door to my prison, thief. I wanted to thank you properly, and I couldn't do that with you up there. She held up her arms, her sleeves falling away to reveal her forearms which were covered with scars. I have hands of air and fire. I can touch things far away. The thief's obsession with opportunity extended to his words as well. He never knew when to keep silent, and he said, It seems to me that if you could push me into the hole from down here, you could have lifted that trapdoor yourself, and there'd be no need for thanks. Not that I don't appreciate your hospitality. It seems to me that a prison with a door that opens from the inside is no prison at all. Prisons are usually more secure than that, the thief agreed. He had some experience in such matters. But they don't usually open for the casual passerby either. You are not a casual passerby. You are the thief I've been waiting for. No one else would have even seen the door but you. You were meant to find me. I'm sure I don't. Shut up, she said sharply, and then took a deep breath. I offered you food before. You smell like pig shit, but not roast pork, so I assume you had a wrestling match with dinner, and dinner won. Eat with me, thief. As he was hungry and trapped anyway, he nodded. I'd be most pleased. You have odd manners for a thief. 
She turned, reaching into the darkness, doing things with her hands that the thief could not see. I've not always claimed that occupation. There was a time when I supped at tables, not in caverns underground. She shoved a platter toward him. Several large green leaves sat in the center, covering something. What's this, he said, lifting a leaf away. The glassy eyes of a dead owl stared up at him, and the thief turned his head away in disgust. The bird's head was twisted completely around, its neck broken. Good lord, woman, are you mad? You'd better hope I'm not mad, she said, her voice low again and serious. Because if I'm mad, you're going to eat that owl, beak, feathers and all, on a mad woman's whim, and have nothing to show for it but stomach cramps and shit that cuts you. She was serious, the thief could tell. And... If you're not mad, then after you eat that owl, we'll get out of this hole, thief, and we will steal something grand. I can't, he said, looking at the dead bird. It was huge. Even plucked and beheaded and cooked, he couldn't have eaten it all. I'm sorry, I don't know why you asked this of me, but I can't. Something tightened around his throat, like blunt, flat fingers cutting off his air. He choked and clawed at his throat but his fingers touched only his own skin. Eat it or die, she said. He gasped his agreement. He had little choice. The invisible fingers loosened, and the thief rubbed his throat. Can I have a knife at least, he asked, dismayed by the roughness of his voice. Of course, she said, and tossed a blade onto the furs beside him. He'd expected a jeweled dagger, but this was a working man's knife serrated on one side, sharp on the other, with a stained leather grip. He looked at the owl, at the knife, at the woman. Aren't you afraid I could kill you with this? Faster than you could stop me, hands of air or not? Not at all, she said. He winced, nodded, and looked at the owl. It's fresh, she said, her voice surprisingly kind. As fresh as it can be. I caught it before I was trapped here, a long time ago, intending to use it myself. I've spent considerable effort to preserve it. You don't have to eat the entrails. They'd make you sick, and anyway, I have other uses for them. And you can have lots of water while you eat. She passed him a fine porcelain pitcher, and he dipped his fingers in to feel cold water. We're not barbarians here. Yes, he ate the owl. The whole thing. Eyes, claws, beaks, feathers. She let him grind up the talents with a stone and mix them in with the water, because he'd fear they'd cut his throat going down otherwise. He didn't vomit, because she told him that if he did, he would have to eat what he threw up. Every foul speck. <laughs> oh, you boys. You love this one, don't you? You'll be telling it to your friends for months. The more disgusting it becomes, the more horrible... The more you'll eat it up. You shits. Be glad, and then it gets worse. She refilled the pitcher from the spring twice, and he drank it all. His stomach clenched, and it took all his concentration not to vomit. He'd never tasted anything so foul, never endured anything so horrible. The woman spread the owl's gray flecked entrails on a square silver tray. She prodded them, smiling, and then nodding as the thief fought his urge to gag. Heat a dead owl for breakfast, the woman said, laughing softly, and nothing worse will happen to you all day. Now will you show me the way out? The thief asked through clenched teeth, arms wrapped around his belly. No, dear. Now you'll sleep, and then you'll show me the way out. The thief did not believe he'd ever be able to sleep, not with that pain in his belly, but the woman offered him a cup, and he drank something sweet and heady from it, and fell into sleep. He dreamed of flying, and swooping down from the night, and listening. The world was a teeming place of flitting movements, small sounds fraught with significance, strange odors, eating was everything, blood was everything. Flying was not the way humans imagined it, a consuming thrill of freedom, a transcendent experience. 
Flying was just the fastest way to get to the blood. The thief woke, opening his eyes to sunlight and trees. No furs beneath him, only soil and a root digging into the small of his back. He would have believed it all a dream, if not for the rough, thick taste of feathers still on his tongue. Not even two pitchers of water had been enough to wash that away. You see, you did show me the way out, the woman said. You flew and took me with you. He turned his head slowly. His stomach didn't hurt so much now, but his limbs felt stretched and his head hurt. The woman sat cross-legged in the dirt, her sleeves pushed back, the scars on her arms horribly white in the sun. We're free, he said. I'm free, my darling, she said. You belong to me for a while yet, but I'll make it worth your while. You used to be the lowest of the low, but soon you'll be a master thief. She touched his forehead, and he flinched away at first, but her fingers seemed to soothe the pounding in his skull, so he let her go on. When she drew her hand away, he saw her scars again. What happened to your arms, he asked, and then regretted it instantly. What madness to remind a woman, a creature like this, of an old injury, an old pain. She didn't get angry. She just said, a knife happened, and stood up. Let's go, thief. You call me thief. It's a good enough name, but what do I call you? Call me mistress. Call me wench. I don't care. Come on. He got to his feet. What really happened? How did we get out? You consumed the owl and partook of its spirit. Part of its power became yours, and you flew from the pit. You carried me with you. That's unbelievable. I've heard stories, but... I'm what the stories are made of, she said. She set off into the forest, walking with long strides. I guess the owl energy is all used up by now, he asked, a bit wistfully following her. She laughed. It's not like a skin of wine. It's the creature's soul, and you consumed it. Its power is in you forever, for as long as your own soul endures. She glanced at him over her shoulder. That doesn't mean you know how to use it, though. You took on the properties of the beast, and then you fainted. I'll expect better than that when we get where we're going. Which is where? She said the name of the thief's home city. He stopped short. I can't go there. I've been exiled from that place. Some say fate can be bargained with when the wind is right. But I'm not fate, and you won't change my mind. We won't make it before the snow, he protested. Not by walking, she agreed. That's why we'll have to fly part of the way. She didn't demand that they fly right away, just that they walk. He squatted behind a rock about noon, but saw no feathers in his shit. He tried to make conversation. How did you wind up in that hole? I thought there was something inside it that I wanted, so I went in after it. And then someone shut the door on me. What were you trying to find? The same thing we're going to steal, thief, so you'll know soon enough. They reached a village just before dusk. She led him through the rutted streets to a thatched building, an inn. The sign read Goats and Compasses, and depicted a ram's head and a compass rose. The woman nodded toward the building. You should eat, and I should get used to people again. Let's go inside. I'm almost out of money, he said. I can't afford a night in an inn. I suppose you didn't notice that you were in a cavern of treasures last night, did you? I have coins. Old coins from kingdoms long gone. But they'll still recognize silver, I wager. She started for the door, then paused, looking above the lintel. Oh, what's this? The thief peered upward. Just a horseshoe nailed over the door for good luck. She laughed. What good do they think that will do? Did you know that in the olden days, a king passing judgment would make the petitioner pass through an iron gate to prove he wasn't enchanted or one of the fair folk? People believed that a fairy creature would scream and burn at the mere proximity of iron, and they hung up horseshoes over their doors to keep such creatures from passing freely. She smiled at the thief, looking not at all motherly. 
It's good to see that human foolishness endures. She strode through the door. The thief followed, shaken. He'd been denying the obvious, trying to convince himself the woman was just a witch or a madwoman touched by the gods. But now he began to wonder if she was human at all, or actually something from the Twilight Realms. He'd believe that the fair folk would recoil from the sight of iron if such creatures existed at all. Apparently, they were sturdier than he'd supposed. He wondered at the scars on her arms, though. A knife, she'd said. But what kind of knife could harm the likes of her, with her hands of air and fire? One with an iron blade? Perhaps the presence of iron alone couldn't harm one of the fair folk. But it could be that their bodies were vulnerable to iron's touch. He would have to keep that possibility in mind. What's that, Snotnose? Your father's a smith and he told you that devils and monster and fair folk flee from the sight of iron? Well, that's as may be. This is a fable, not a true history. And fables have all manners of fantastic things in them, don't they? And you, what is it? Oh, you thought fables all had talking animals? Well, mayhap the owl spoke before our thief ate it. Hmm? Could well be. Do you care to hear about their evening in the inn, and the music they heard, and the strange way the woman had of laughing at people, and the way they dressed? Or do you wish to move ahead, on to something bloodier? I thought so. I know, boys. I used to be one. They shared a room. The thief took the bed gratefully, though he suspected the woman was not being kind. She would not sleep at all, he supposed. She sat on the floor with a lantern by her knees, shaking bits of bone and brass onto a cloth and studying the patterns they made. Sometimes she frowned. Sometimes, and this was worse, she giggled. After what felt like only a few moments of sleep, the thief awoke to a great pounding on the door and someone shouting, This is the innkeeper! Open the door! The woman stood by the window, her mouth turned down. The thief looked at her. Should we go out the window, he said, knowing the sound of trouble when he heard it. No, I'm curious to see what he wants. Open the door. The thief pulled his shirt on. The door shuddered in its frame. The innkeeper was hitting it with something heavier than his fist. Don't knock your own door down, the thief yelled. I'm coming. He unhooked the lock and pulled the door open. The innkeeper stood in the doorway, his face red with fury or exertion, and he held an iron-headed cudgel in one hand. "'What is it, my good man?' the thief asked. "'This money,' he said, and flung a handful of coins at the thief's chest. "'It's nothing but painted bits of wood. I don't know how my wife mistook it for the real thing in the first place, but I'm not so easily fooled. "'You owe—' "'Painted wood?' the woman said sharply. "'It's not real?' The thief stood aside, more than willing to let her take over. She went to the door. I'm sorry for the mistake. Here. She opened her coin pouch and shook the contents into her palm. She looked down at the coins in her hand and made a small sound of dismay. More painted wood, the innkeeper said. That won't buy you much, I'm afraid, not even mercy. You can leave, old woman, but I'm going to have your son lashed with a horsewhip. It's been a while since the mayor worked his arm. I have money, the thief said, reluctant to part with his few coins, which wouldn't cover the room in their meals anyway, but even more eager to avoid a flogging. That bastard, the woman said, still looking at the coins, oblivious. It wasn't even a real treasure trove, just enchanted junk. I wonder what I was really resting on all those years that I thought was a pile of furs. Don't talk about enchantment, the innkeeper said, fear showing beneath his anger. He lifted his cudgel. I won't have talk of witchery here. You may not forbid me anything, she said, looking into his face. Stand aside, and we'll be on our way. He slapped the head of the cudgel into his hand. The thief saw how her gaze followed the movement. She feared the weapon. Stand aside, or you'll be a puddle of blood in a moment. He laughed aloud. You should be whipped too, woman. I'll see to it. Oh, will you? His arm, the one holding the cudgel, bent backward. He cried out, and then his forearm bent sharply in an impossible direction, 
and the bone cracked. The cudgel fell from his hand, and the woman jumped back when it hit the floor. The man opened his mouth as if to scream, but no sound emerged. His other arm jerked, and then his left leg, and he fell to the floor. The woman's hands of air and fire were at work again. The thief stood with his money pouch in hand, afraid to move. The woman glared at him. Come on, thief, follow your calling. See if he has a purse. We're not as well off as I'd supposed before. We'd best replenish our coffers. The thief did as he was told, though he found the man silent, thrashing, pitiful, and disturbing. He fumbled at the man's belt and found the small purse that jingled. He snatched it away, breaking the leather thong. The man slid into the room on his face, dragged by invisible hands. The door swung partway shut, but the cudgel was in the way and held the door ajar. Move that club, the woman said, now! The thief did so, nudging it out of the way with his foot. The door slammed shut. He looked down at the weapon. Perhaps the old stories had a grain of truth to them after all. Perhaps the fair folk couldn't touch iron, at least not with their hands of air and fire. They could move doors, beds, people, but nothing made of iron. The trap door over the cavern had been made of iron, he recalled, and probably the walls of the cave were full of it as well. Whoever had imprisoned this woman had done his work well, until the thief came along and ruined it. He heard a horrible wet noise from behind him. He didn't look. What are you doing? he asked. Turning him into a puddle of blood like I promised, she said. She did not sound angry or pleased, just intent. She was a woman doing a difficult job well. The thief kept his face turned to the wall. Long minutes later, she said, I don't suppose it's worthwhile to eat him. His spirits can't have much of use. Stupidity and miserliness and little else. Can we go now? The thief asked, shuddering. He would not eat human flesh. Never that, no matter what she said. No matter if it gave him the strength of a giant or the mind of a scholar or the power of a king. Never that. We can go if you're ready to fly. I'd prefer if you did it without fainting this time. All right, I'll try. They slipped out of the inn quietly, going down the back stairs. To avoid exiting through the front, they went into the kitchen. They could escape through the back door. A little boy, shirtless, no more than ten, stood by a long table, munching on a piece of bread. The thief and the woman stopped short. The boy swallowed silently, then narrowed his eyes. When his expression soured, it became obvious that he was the innkeeper's son. Their features were nearly identical. Father, he shouted, startling the thief. Father, people's in the kitchen trying to leave without paying. Shut up, boy, the woman said and stepped forward, raising her scarred hands. No, the thief said. Let's just go. We'll fly. Come on. He's only a boy. The woman glared at the boy and hissed. The boy's head rocked as if he'd been slapped. The thief grabbed the woman's arm. It felt like flesh, ordinary flesh, but what did he know? And pulled her toward the door. They emerged into the wide space between the inn and the stables. We need open air, the woman said. Too many eaves here. She started toward the back of the inn, and the thief followed. In the open space out back, the woman turned on him. Now fly, you bastard. South. I... I don't know how... You know, she said. You remember it in your bones and in your bowels. What's flying? Why do you fly? He struggled to put the concept into words. To get to the blood, he said, remembering his dream, remembering the strange experience of viewing the world through an owl's senses. I fly to get to the blood. You remember, she said. You imagine, and that is but one short step from the act itself. Yes, he stared past her into the sky. Sky above, blood below. Yes. He heard footsteps and a shout. Dimly, with the bird's disinterest for things scurrying on the ground, he saw the innkeeper's son, still holding his chunk of bread. The boy yelled something the thief couldn't understand. The thief wondered if the boy was blood, and decided not. Too big. Since there was nothing to eat here, the thief flew away. He felt something, a presence next to him, or on him, or beside him. But that seemed only right and natural 
and he thought of it no more. He flew south, towards blood. After a long time, the thief stood swaying in a field, the taste of something nasty in his mouth. He spat out bits of fur. The woman stood beside him. She patted him on the back. You swooped down and snatched up a mouse. Sorry, I couldn't stop you. He spat again and gagged. Oh, stop that. You ate a whole dead owl. Surely you can stand the taste of one little mouse. The essence might help you be stealthier, too. I wish I'd never fallen down your god-rotted hole, he said, spitting again. That's only because you haven't found untold wealth yet. Come, we're near the city of your disgrace. It's been a long time since I've been there. I wonder how it's changed. She glanced at him. Do you want to see your parents or anything? You humans have strange ideas about such things. You've been good. I'm willing to indulge you. She walked through the moonlit pasture, beckoning him to follow. He didn't look at her. This was the first time she'd openly admitted that she wasn't human. No. They... They agreed with the judgment passed down by the mayor. They agreed that I should be exiled. They're very strict. Very traditional. They forget what it's like to be young and hot-blooded. Young and hot-blooded, she shook her head. Your kind mystify me. I've always been as old as I am now, he sighed. Can't you even pretend to be a normal woman? Once we're inside the walls, certainly, if that proves advantageous. But here, between us, what's the point? What's going to become of me when all this is done? Humans never got the good end of a bargain with the fair folk in the stories, and he hadn't even struck a bargain with this one, just been coerced along. I think I'll keep you for a while. You are a useful set of hands, and you have some spine, though it's buried deeply. We've had a rough time of it these past two days, I know, but things will get better once I take care of this little errand. She shook her head. I left the Isle of my people a very long time ago to fetch this item. I never imagined it would take this long. It's even possible that my queen grows impatient, and her patience is like that of a mountain. What are we stealing? Why do you insist on keeping it a secret? Just contrariness. Why do you want to know so badly? If I'm supposed to steal something, it would be helpful to know what it is, so that I can make plans. You never make plans anyway, she said, waving his objections away. You wait for a clear opportunity and you seize it. In this case, I'm going to prepare the opportunity for you. All you have to do is grab what I tell you to grab and then follow me. The thief was unhappy with that, but he could do little about it. So he followed the woman as they neared the city of his birth, a walled city on the coast. As they neared the gates, which were just opening as dawn approached, the thief noticed something strange. Several wooden cross pieces had been erected outside the wall, and a metal cage hung from each beam. What are those for? the thief asked. I don't know. It's your city. They didn't have these last time I was here. A man sat in one of the cages, his legs crossed beneath him. The bottom of the cage hung at roughly eye level. The cage was floored with wood, and the prisoner sat cross-legged, staring blankly toward the city. What's this? the thief called to him. What's the meaning of this cage? The man looked at him for a moment, then turned his face away and wept. Imprisoned in an iron cage, the woman said, horrified. I wonder if he's only meant to hang there for a short time, or if they'll leave him until he dies. The thief only shook his head. You humans, your ingenuity never fails to amaze me. You look like you're about to piss yourself, Smith's son. What is it? Yes, I know. Every town you've ever heard of has punishment cages, like the cursed one I'm inside, like the ones the thief saw, yes, what of it? He'd never seen one before because this fable takes place in the past, in a time before any of you were born, when your parents, if they lived at all, were mere children themselves. The cages were a new thing then. Ask your mothers and fathers if you don't believe me, or your grandparents. I wager they'll tell you they used to live in pleasanter times, The people haven't always been so treacherous and cruel, and that there was no need for these cages long ago. They're wrong, though, my boys. 
People have always been as they are now, throughout all time. I know. You're impatient. We're almost done. I'll pass by their arrival, the way they came through the gates unnoticed. The thief a little dismayed and surprised to find that his exile was of so little notice that the guards didn't even recognize him. He knew there were those in the city who would know his face, though, even with his black beard, and so he walked with his head down. The woman walked the streets with great assurance, and the thief's heart sank as it became clear that she intended to begin this grand theft of hers right now, in daylight. And then they reached the destination, and it was a house the thief knew. No, the thief said, stopping short on the cobbles. Not that house. None other, the woman said. Do you know it? Is it the home of a childhood friend, perhaps? She half smiled, and the thief wondered how much she knew about him, wondered if she could see his dreams or hear his memories and thoughts. It is the captain's house, the house of the man who had me exiled. Well, the woman said, pleased, I told you it was destiny, didn't I? You're familiar with this house, then? The arrangement of rooms? Yes, the thief said, because she would know if he lied. Yes, I've been inside many times. What can he have that you want? Something his father stole, or his father's father, or perhaps the one before that, who knows? I can't keep up with your teeming generations, thief. Some ancestor of his landed on the isle of my homeland, and through blind luck and stupid audacity, made off with something that belongs to my queen. When I came to steal it back, I found that I could not do so alone, that I needed a human agent. Before I could get help, I was tricked into the prison where you found me. How did you wind up in a place so distant from here? That's a long story, she said darkly, and one I have little interest in telling you. I imagine the one who holds that treasure now will be less cautious, less resourceful than his forefather. The thief knew the captain, and he doubted her assessment. The captain was a formidable man. How do you know he even has the treasure? Fortunes change over generations. It's in the house, she said. The owl's guts told me that much. Oh. What do we do now? We break in and murder everyone in the house, and you scoop up the treasure when I point it out to you. Easy enough, yes? The thief stared at her. Murder? Yes, she said placidly. I am to kill the thief or his descendant, as that's the best I can do, and all who serve them, and all who dwell in his house. But his daughter? Ah, yes, the root of your exile. You'd better hope she's married and living in another man's house, hadn't you? She raised her eyebrow. But I suppose her value as a wife might have been diminished by the cause of your exile, unless human customs have changed greatly while I've been underground. I won't help you if you kill her, the thief said. We'll see, she said. They proceeded up the walk to the captain's door. The woman pounded on the wood with her fist and frowned. Look, the doorknob's made of iron, she said. She peered at the door jam, and there's iron hammered onto the frame. Here. That wasn't here the first time I arrived. It appears I taught the old man caution, though... As usual, they misunderstand the relationship my kind has with iron. I knew a man once, the thief said slowly, who couldn't eat shrimp or lobsters. If he did, his skin buffed up and turned red and split. Is it something like that, that iron does to you? Before she could answer, the door opened. The thief tensed, expecting to see the captain's face, expecting to be shouted at and struck. Instead... It was the captain's daughter, a bit older, of course, but still lovely, her hair falling in fine curls around her face. Seeing her brought forth a welter of emotions, shame at what he'd done to her life, wistfulness for those sweet, exciting days with her, sadness at what had become of his life, resentment of her as the fundamental cause of his current situation. Yes, she said, can I? Her eyes widened as she recognized the thief. You, she said, and for a moment he thought she would strike him. He'd chosen exile over marriage to her, which certainly gave her cause for anger. But she only said, 
You have to go. What if my father sees you? My nephew has come to beg your father's forgiveness, the woman said. The thief looked at her. Fortunately, the captain's daughter did too, and so she didn't notice his expression. What? I don't. He's my grandnephew, in truth, and after his unfortunate experiences here, he came to live with me. He's made quite a life for himself down the coast, and he has always regretted what happened. He'd like to speak to your father, to offer his apologies, and, if possible, find out what he has to do to make things right. Then, as if the question had just occurred to her, the woman said, Have you married, child? The captain's daughter looked at her, then at the thief, and shook her head. No, I never have. Then we've come in time, the woman said. May we come in? The captain's daughter stepped aside. The woman glanced at the thief, grinning with her eyes, and stepped through the door. The thief followed. The daughter led them down the hall, glancing over her shoulder at the thief all the while, worry and confusion showing in her face. The thief avoided her gaze, glad the woman hadn't killed her straight out, but troubled by this pretense. There could be no neat way out of this. There would be a theft here, at the very least, and if he knew this woman at all, there would also be blood. Perhaps I can intercede to save her life, he thought, looking at the curls falling down her back. But that was a foolish thought. To avoid thinking, the thief looked around the house. It hadn't changed much. The walls were hung with brass nautical implements and lined with shelves and cabinets which held strange curios from other lands, figurines, bits of statuary, slivers of petrified wood, crystal formations. The daughter led them to a sitting room. Father is in his office. I'll... I suppose I'll go get him. You can wait here. After she left, the woman said, Do they have servants? The thief jumped. N no, they didn't anyway. A woman came in the evenings to cook for them, but that was all. The mother and daughter kept the house in order otherwise. So just the parents and the girl to contend with. Good. Why did you tell her all of that, about my coming to make things right? I was going to twist her head off, thief, but I decided to honor your wishes, for the time being at least. I told you you'd been good. I'm feeling indulgent. You don't? Someone shouted elsewhere in the house and something crashed, like furniture falling over. Boots pounded down the hall. I think Papa's coming, the woman said. The captain entered the room, stopping just inside the door. He ignored the woman entirely, staring at the thief. You, he said. I didn't believe her. I didn't think you were this sort of fool. Daintier footsteps followed, and the daughter and her mother appeared behind the captain, each laying a restraining hand on his arm. He shook them off and stalked into the room. He was not a big man, but strong, his muscles standing out like ropes. The woman raised her arms, and the captain stopped in mid-stride, his eyes bulging. Now that you've calmed down, perhaps we can talk, the woman said. The daughter and the captain's wife stood, unmoving too, their eyes wide. You have something that belongs to my mistress, a jewel, a green jewel. One of your grandsires stole it, and I've come to take it back. She stood and approached the captain. She brushed back her sleeve and turned her arm, showing him the scars. That old thief cut me too and trapped me. You look very much like him, and if you don't cooperate, I might forget the distinction between you and your ancestor. We wouldn't want that. The captain twitched a little around the mouth. The woman stepped close to him and touched her finger to his chin. His mouth dropped open. He made a low, moaning sound. You don't want that old jewel anyway, do you? She asked softly. No. So where is it? My office. She turned and looked at the thief. Let's go fetch it then. The thief nodded, queasy. He'd thought he hated the captain, but seeing him like this... Afraid and paralyzed made him sick, not satisfied. This is a good opportunity for you, the woman said. We've got him right where we want him. You can make any demands that you like. I'll see that he agrees. She looked pointedly at the captain's daughter. The thief looked at her, the woman he'd loved once, or believed he'd loved, 
at her body, still beautiful, which had once moved under him and still moved in his dreams. He could have her, he knew, take her with him. The woman could even make her love him, if he wanted that. But he hadn't wanted her enough to stay and marry her the first time, had he? And he shouldn't do so now. She deserved better. Slowly, the thief shook his head. I want nothing from this house. The woman curled her lip. You think you're being noble, I suppose? She might have had a pleasant life with you. I could have made her forget this nonsense. She clapped her hands together as if brushing off dust. Very well, let's go. She lifted her hand, and the daughter and her mother fell, to lie stiffly on the carpet like tumbled statues. The thief winced, but he could do nothing to help them. He'd done all he could. They went to the captain's office. The woman stepped inside, assessed the room, shelves of books, a large desk, lamps, chairs, and walked straight to a glassed-in case. There, she said, the jewel. The thief looked into the case and saw no jewel, only a dark sphere of... Ah. It was an intricate, spherical metal cage, a thing of curves and layers, a journeyman smith, useless piece of finery, perhaps, an iron ball of filigree, as big as two fists held together, with a tiny green jewel set deep in the center. You can't even touch it, the thief said. Why else do you think I brought you? The thief nodded. He took a heavy piece of quartz from the captain's desk and shattered the glass, then reached inside and grasped the iron cage. It's cold, he gasped. I imagine, the woman said, though it would burn me. That jewel is from my queen's crown, and it carries a little bit of her royalty still, like a scent that lingers on a pillow. To have even the queen's decorations trapped in a cage of iron? She shook her head. The antipathy is strong, and it makes the iron cold. What do we do now? The thief asked, his fingers growing numb. Where? Where do we go? For he was thinking of the far isle of the fair folk, and of the wonders and horrors he would see there, of the madness and forgetfulness that would surely overcome him on those shores. Back to the hole in the ground, she said. There are smith's tools there, among all other things, and as iron cannot be enchanted, I know those tools are real, and not bits of wood or offal made to look like coins and furs. You want me to break this case and free the jewel, he said. I've never used smith's tools. If you can't figure it out, my thief, we'll just find the blacksmith and let you eat him whole, hands and ankles, heart and eyeballs. Then you'll know how to wield a hammer. Do you prefer that course? I think I can learn enough on my own to break this cage. Acts of destruction are the easiest to learn, aren't they, thief? They went down the hall. What will become of the captain and his family, the thief asked. Will you spare them? Would you like to consume the daughter? Eat every bit of her and keep a little of her with you, always in that fashion? Gods, no, monster, I would not. Very well. Then her soul will be consigned to wherever such things go. I'm going to kill them all, thief. You horrible. Clutch that ball tightly, my dear, she said, and go to sleep. The thief did. He woke. Groggy, lying on a pile of musty furs. My sleepy thief, I hit you with that enchantment hard. I'm sorry. He sat up in the dimness and screamed as every part of his body exploded into pins and needles as his sleeping limbs woke. Only his hands still clasping the metal ball were awake. The proximity to the iron had kept her enchantment from making his hands fall asleep. That's right, move around, the woman said. Work out the stiffness. We're back, he croaked, his throat dry. Underground? You walked the whole way, though it's a jerky, stiff-legged walk, and it tired me out to drive you that way. I thought you'd wake up sooner, but I was a little annoyed when I put you under. You really shouldn't speak so harshly to me, thief. I had you drag away the old metal trap door and build a wooden one to replace it, and there's a ladder now. Otherwise, yes, this is our familiar abode. The girl? The captain's daughter? A puddle, she said, waving her hand. A pool of nothing much. When your arms are well awake, the smith's tools are there, and I've got a fire going. 
We'll figure out how to break that ball. Why did you kill them? The thief squeezed the cold iron ball. Because of the hurt their ancestor gave me, he was beyond my reach, so I contented myself with the descendants. You're inhuman. You state the obvious. I need water, he said suddenly. I imagine. The pitcher is... Over there, she said, and stretched out her arm to point. The thief saw his opportunity. He hurled the ball as hard as he could toward her midsection. She grunted as the ball struck her, then screamed. Smoke rose from her dress as it caught fire. In the dimness, the thief could hardly see what had happened, but it seemed that the iron ball had buried itself into her stomach. You shit-eating bastard, she shrieked. She reached down as if to pull the ball away, but screamed and pulled her hands back when she touched it. Insubstantial hands gripped the thief's throat, and he grunted and started toward the fire and the smith's tools. The hands fluttered, faded, returned. She'd been tired anyway, she said, and now she was grievously wounded. Her hands of air and fire were tired. Still, his vision dimmed, and he fell to his knees near the anvil. He reached out and grabbed a pair of iron pincers. He struggled to lift the heavy tool, but managed to press it to his throat. The woman screamed anew, and the invisible hands withdrew. The thief laboriously gained his feet and stepped toward her. The ball of iron was almost invisible now, burning its way deeply into her guts. We could have had such fun, she said, coughing up smoke. You would have lived forever if you just agreed to serve me. I think I might have figured out a way to do that anyway, the thief said. He struck her in the face with the iron pincers. It took almost a full week to eat her body. She had no organs or bones, just soft, spongy meat throughout, which both relieved and disturbed him. Her flesh tasted like nothing at all, but it still repulsed him to cut and consume her. The story said that the fair folk had no souls, and so he wondered whether eating her would have any effect. What good was ingesting the spirit of a soulless thing? But the night he finished her, he had strange dreams. And when he climbed the ladder and emerged into the dark forest, he discovered that he had hands of air and fire, and could move things with a thought, and feel them from far away. As the years passed, he found that he did not age as men did, nor did he take wounds. And so he felt satisfied, at last, that he was a master thief. That's my story, boys, and now the sun's near gone and you should go home, yes? Ah, the questions, the questions. What became of the thief? Well, long after he ate the woman who was not a woman, after many years of wandering, he began to ponder his weakness. Because you see, along with his hands of air and fire on his long life, he'd also acquired the woman's weakness. He could no longer touch iron, the metal grew cold if he even put his hand near it, and he knew it would burn him if he touched it. But he thought to himself, Am I not at bottom a man? Could I not perhaps overcome this weakness if I only had the right meal? The thief thought back to the woman's suggestion that he could eat a smith to gain familiarity with tools. And the thief thought, Yes, perhaps I'll eat a smith and gain his ease with iron, and the metal will vex me no more. For it is amazing how many things in the world are made of iron, boys, not least of all this cage. The thief had never eaten a man. He'd kept that vow all those years, because the woman did not count as human, you see. But he thought the time had come to forget silly vows, just as he'd forgotten the face of the captain's daughter. So the thief came to a village and took a room in an inn, which had a ram's head on its sign, as many of them do. And the next day he went to the smith's. He was uncomfortable around the horseshoes and the anvil and the hammers, but managed to put on a peaceful face. He hailed the smith, intending to inquire after a bit of work, and then kill him, and speared his body away for a leisurely meal. The smith looked familiar, and from the way his eyes went wide, the thief knew he recognized him too. Ah, boys, your own eyes are wide. Is this a familiar story? The smith looked just like the old keeper of the inn, the one the woman had killed that first night the thief traveled with her. 
casting back, far back in his memory, the thief thought that this, perhaps, was that same village grown a little larger, but still the same. He realized the smith was the innkeeper's son, all grown up, and that with his father dead he'd had to apprentice to a trade other than innkeeping. The son recognized the thief, and in his face it was clear that he remembered the witchery, remembered the murder and seeing the thief fly away. The thief threw out his hands of air and fire, but the smith had iron all around him and a hammer in his hand, and the invisible hands rebounded from those things. The smith struck our thief with a hammer and knocked him down, and the thief woke in a cage, yes, like this one, very like, with a grievous burn on his face from the hammer's iron. The thief tried to escape, but he could not open the cage himself, because his hands could not touch the iron bars, neither his real hands nor his other ones. And now, my boys, the moral. I fear I have misled you. There is no moral, because a moral comes at the end of the tale. If I stayed in this cage and died, there might be some lesson to be learned from my long life, but my life hasn't ended yet, and so it's a poor time for accounting before the ledger's even closed. Because I can still grab you, brats. Despite this metal all around, I can reach my hands of air and fire through these bars and grasp you lightly by the necks as I've done now. And you, Smith's son, you'll go and take and steal your father's smallest hammer and chisel and come back here in the dark and break this cage open. If you don't, I'll squeeze your friends until they're blue and then black. And if you serve me, perhaps I'll teach you secrets and show you wonders. You only look afraid now, but you'll learn to look happy and hopeful and bright in time. And after you release me, perhaps we can find something good to eat. Yes? And welcome back. Well, before we pick up anything neat or get to feedback this week, I wanted to give a hearty congrats to my friend and yours, M.K. Hobson, for the funding of her Kickstarter project, The Warlock's Curse. And I'm so excited to see Hobson write more books set in the Native Star universe. Can't wait to read her Tesla. <laughs> Can't wait to read the whole damn thing, honestly. Congrats, Hobson. We're all looking forward to it. Okay, speaking of congratulatories, feedback this week is for a big 200th episode extravaganza. Scott Lynch's In the Stacks, read by, well, a lot of us. That's right, we went full cast for the first time here, and took you on a journey to return a library book to an awesomely dangerous library. There are five pages of feedback on this, and counting, but I'll try and be brief. Generally, sounds like most of you had as much fun as we did. Lots of people were quoting lines from the stories, like LaShawn, who said, I want a t-shirt that says, More words, more words, feed the vocabulary. An electric paladin said, Tonight we will get drunk, in the human fashion. Damn, but I want that on a t-shirt. Apparently Scott Lynch can make a lot of money selling t-shirts. Windbear said, Through a convoluted chain of events, I just stumbled onto Podcastle, and this was my first episode. I thought the full cast recording was great and wasn't too distracted by the audio variances during the very engaging story. Wow, welcome man, thanks for listening. There were a few quibbles, some people felt it was a typical dungeon crawl, which may be fair, although I don't think we've ever done a dungeon crawl here before. Others found the full cast production a bit distracting, to which I have to say, have no fear, we will not be doing another full cast episode like this for at least 100 episodes, possibly more, lest Peter goes all Games of Thrones on my head. And, quite a few people thought it was one of the best episodes they'd heard here and really enjoyed it. And, to the commoner out there who asked for me to read more stories as the bad guy, well, hope you like this one. There's lots more, like I said, five pages, and you can eat it all up over at forum.escapeartist.net. While you're there, let us know what you thought of this week's story, and if you like what we're doing, please consider visiting podcastle.org and making a donation. 
Every single cent goes to paying our authors, so while they're trapped in an iron cage, they don't have to rely on eating owls or rats or anything else that's clawing in and clawing out. And if you can't afford to donate, please consider tweeting, Facebooking, writing a review on iTunes, blogging, or just telling a friend about us. Thank you so much. Well, that was our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. On behalf of everyone here at Podcastle, I'd like to thank you so much for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back next week with a classic story written by the one and only Peter S. Beagle. Until then, we will get drunk tonight in the human fashion, but preferably not by imbibing any humans. See you next time. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Alex Garland said, Though I walk through the valley of death, I will fear no evil, for I am the evilest motherfucker in the valley. <laughs>